As we continue the series through Judges, the book of Judges, if you'll open with me in your Bibles or your phone apps to Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. Again, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. We'll have three judges introduced to us. We'll see what they do and how this is a preview of deliverance. So Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them to the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave him Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon the king of Moab against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon the king of Moab eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminites, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tributes, he sent away the people who carried the tributes. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilts also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors that the doors of the roof of the of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpets in the hill country of Ephraim, 
Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox code, and he also saved Israel. Let us pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us not just temporary preview of deliverance. You've shown us true, absolutely sure deliverance in your son, Jesus Christ. May his name, may his glory, may his salvation be preached today. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. So the sirens are glaring. Everything around you is absolutely crazy. There's hail, there's wind up to 150 miles an hour. But then after a little bit, it's silent. There's clear skies. There's no rain. There's no winds. There's no lightning. There's no thunder. It's calm. But you know something's coming. The eye of the hurricane, generally speaking, looks like there's nothing coming. You just went through about a day's worth of absolute insanity weather-wise. But for about six hours, there's nothing. It's silence. You wonder, has this storm passed? But you know from experience, this storm has not yet passed. There's a slight moment of rest. But you know the impending storm is only pushed back a little bit, not averted completely. And you get something like this with Judges 3. You get the storm brewing in Judges 1 and 2. You get the historical accounts of Israel's apostasy, Israel falling away from the Lord consistently. And then Judges 2, you get the theological accounts of Israel falling away from the Lord. You wonder, is everything downhill from here on out? But then you read Judges 3, and there's a slight glimmer of hope. You say, what if this tiny glimpse into Israel's deliverance in chapter 3? And even the way this chapter is written, it provides irony, comedy, and this military-like stealth close to some of the best movies you've ever seen. So we move now from the summary chapters of the Judges period between chapters 1 and 2, to the first three judges introduced in chapter 3. And so we ask, are we going to find obedience 
or disobedience to law, or something slightly different. So we'll hear three distinct judges and a true preview of deliverance, albeit in an odd and seemingly incomplete form. The first is Othniel, who is deliverance prefigured on your outline. A single generation of rest follows from his deliverance. Then the next is Ehud, who is deliverance practiced. The next in your outline. We're given something like an expanded version of Othniel, and we're even given two generations, not just one, but two generations of rest from Israelite oppressors and a kind of Moses-like figure. And the last is Shamgar, who is deliverance paused. So after this escalation of deliverance between Othniel and Ehud, you might expect rest for the lands. After he strikes the Canaanites, but it's absent. There is no explicit rest. So in this, you'll hear that these three imperfect deliverers, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, you're given a glimpse of your perfect rest in Christ. The one who not only delivers you from your enemies, both within and without, but actually delivers you, not temporarily, but delivers you eternally. And so the same cycle occurs the very beginning of Judges 3 that we've seen in the previous two chapters. But this time it's slightly different. And we're introduced to the same deliverer we heard about in Judges 1. We're actually given a preview of this preview in Judges 1. So, why is Othniel repeated again in Judges 3? Which brings to our first points, deliverance prefigured. Kind of like your in- reintroduction to Othniel. The author is saying, you remember this guy? Let's bring him back into the fold. His temporary deliverance and ensuing temporary rest granted to the land, but not to Israel. In Judges 3, 7, if you look at this, states, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So this is the same phrase that's used in Judges 2, verse 11, though a period separates the two statements. The authors emphasize and the reason they, the people forgot Yahweh, the Lord, was because they forgot about him. And we can ask and answer ourselves how easily we can fail to remember our own deliverance in Christ. And in the middle of chapter 3, verse 8, we hear, And he, the Lord, sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. So the same cycle repeated all throughout the first two chapters of Judges will disobedience continue to run rampant. Notice, he sold them into the hand of. This is divine sovereignty in action. Nothing that occurs in the book of Judges happens by chance. 
And as we heard a month ago, Paul refers to this in Acts 13, talking about the foreordained salvation that Gentiles have in Christ because of the judges period, which is us right here and right now. And even the name Kushan Ruthathayim is probably not his proper name, but the author is kind of interpreting it for us. It's something like translated, king of double wickedness. So the author of Judges is telling you, this guy is not a good guy. doesn't even have to tell you his name. He's like, he's a really bad guy. He's doubly wicked. Not just single wicked, but doubly wicked. So Othniel is up to quite the enemy. Not only is he facing a doubly wicked king, but the king of the superpower in reign right at this time in this region. So this tiny little nation states versus the superpower at this time. And in chapter 3, verse 9, when it says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, we heard a month ago that this is probably not a legitimate cry of repentance, but like this general cry under oppression, more like, we're being oppressed, please help us. We're not going to talk about our sin. We're just being oppressed. So even though Israel fails to repent, the Lord still comes in mercy because of his covenants with his people from Judges 2. And we were reintroduced to Othniel, whom we heard a little bit about in Judges chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. So this serves as kind of a summary statement for Judges chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. And notice what the author states in verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. The first instance we have this in the book of Judges. So his judgeship is powered by the Spirit of the Lord. The same one hovering over the waters of the deep we've been hearing about in Genesis, who fills the tabernacle in the wilderness after the giving of the law in Exodus 20. So in a very real way, Othniel is divinely appointed for his mediatorship. So what happens? We can expect, or we, we do expect from Judges 1 and 2 that things aren't going to go well. Because nothing's gone well the first two chapters until Judges 3. But what happens? Very simply, he, Othniel, went out to war. No struggle. And the Lord gave Kushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Othniel is appointed, and he saves. He's obedience to this call. This absolutely terrifying king, the superpower in this region, is taken by a tiny Israelite nation under Othniel. He does precisely what he's called to do. And what did the Lord pronounce over Israel as a result of their disobedience and faithlessness? In chapter 3, verse 2, what we did a month ago, it says, He would teach war to those who had not known it before. 
What is Othniel doing in this period? In verses 7 through 11. He is learning war. He went out to war. So we have true deliverance from our oppressors, right? They're done. They don't have to worry about oppressors any longer after Othniel defeated them, right? Or do we? Verse 11 states, So land had rest 40 years. Then the Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The land, not the people, had rest. And this 40 years is kind of a general Hebrew way of saying about a single generation. Temporary rest. Deliverance only prefigured. So Othniel dies. He's not the deliverer. Israel needs a new mediator, a new judge, who can faithfully serve like Othniel served. But they need eternal rest in the land, not just temporary. Who will come and fill these shoes? Which brings the point to deliverance practice. We see a little elongated version of this deliverance. So Ehud, next, is raised as a deliverer. Assumedly sometime after Othniel, what happens again in verse 12? Has Israel learned their lesson? No. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sights of the Lord. You would think that they, and you would think that we would have it figured out by this point, but we certainly don't. Another way of rendering this, kind of like the phrase in verse 13, is Israel gathered together to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Gathered together, almost like they got together and said, let's do this together. So how does the Lord respond? Does he strike them down? Is it you guys or idiots, I'm going to strike you down because you keep on failing my law. What does the Lord do? He raises not a judge, but another oppressor over Israel. And this oppressor is explicitly stated as being used by the Lord. So Israel gathers together to do evil in verse 12. Then the Amalekites gather together against the Israelites in verse 13. Almost like two enemies battling against each other. One trying to do, outdo the other in evil. However, instead of the Israelites taking possession of the land, who is taking possession? Those of the Canaanite people group, the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And in verse 14, our author starts to get has some fun with some language. Chapter 3 has been called the funniest chapter in the entire Old Testament because of how often he plays on words. Introduced in verse 12 to King Eglon, the Israelites are now serving him. So Eglon is both the name of a king, but also the Hebrew word for a heifer or a calf. So we're meant to see this verse in two ways. 
serving an oppressive king and continuing to worship an idol, specifically a cow. Think the golden calf in Exodus 32. The same word used for Eglon and for the golden calf in Exodus 32. Then in verse 15, what happens? They cry out to the Lord under the oppression of this king. Is there any sign of repenting for their sins, sacrificing for their sins, or contrite hearts? They're simply saying, help us out. We're under an oppressor. So Ehud is raised by the Lord. He's a Benjaminite. And that's significant. A left-handed man. Another play on words. Benjaminites is son of the right hand. Yet Ehud is a left-handed man. The author is foreshadowing something we will get to. This left-handed also refers to an elite group of warriors. If you're left-handed in this room right now, you're an elite group of warriors. This phrase literally rendered as a man tied of his right hand. It refers to a group of elite warriors who would tie their right hand to their side, be forced to use their left hand, because most other opposing enemies expect you to use your right arm for a sword. So they're taught to use their left arm because it's unexpected. And we'll see a lot of this in Ehud, the unexpectedness of his deliverance. This is also used in Judges 20, verse 16, and 1 Chronicles 12, for warriors who could aim at a, at aim a hundred yards away at a single strand of hair and never miss. These are the elites of the elites of the elites, but nobody knows it because they expect your right arm. And so Yahweh, the Lord, is rendered through Ehud the judgment upon this pagan king. So after our introduction to Ehud, he prepares for his battle with Eglon by fashioning an extremely sharp, so double-edged, double-edged is an idiom for extremely sharp sword, and placing it on his right thigh. So if you think your right arm is the one that's usually used by a warrior, where is your sword usually placed? Because you go across your body. It's usually placed on your left side. This guy has his left arm, he places it on his right side. Unexpected. The people give Ehud a tribute in verse 15, and now he presents it to the king of Moab. Likely some sort of peace offering. Say, hey, we're cool with each other. Let's continue this relationship. Which again, he shouldn't be doing with a foreign nation. So it's what we call a vassal or a servant people. This under people might give to a suzerain or this sovereign, this king of the states. And it opens a door for future interactions between this vassal or Ehud and the suzerain or the king. Also in verse 17, we hear, Now Eglon was a very fat man. I think initially we think the author is being insensitive. He's not being insensitive at all. So remember, 
Eglon is also the word used for calf in Hebrew. The author is actually setting up a sacrifice. He's setting up Eglon as a fattened calf being prepared for slaughter. A sacrifice to the Lord. After devising his plan in verse 18, he sends the people away, so the stage is set. It's private. In verse 19, Ehud says, I have a secret message for you, O king. It can also be rendered, I have a secret thing for you, O king. We as the audience know what this thing is. It's this double-edged sword he just fashioned. The king has no idea. He thinks probably it's a word from the gods. And then in verse 20, again, remember how the author crafted this narrative as some sort of comedy or a festival of irony. When verse 20 states, And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, and he arose from his seats. We can very easily pass over this verse but it's most likely Eglon's going to the bathroom. And so think about this. This all-powerful king who rules the most powerful region at this time is being presented by the author as a fattened calf using the restroom. The Lord is sovereign and will not be unseated by any temporary king. And in verse 21, and Ehud reached with his left hand. There it is. That's the unexpected. He doesn't expect him to reach with his left hand because again, remember, which hand do warriors usually use? Their right hands. He's using his left hands. And he thrust it into his belly. Another play on words. So both vital organs are obviously within your belly. But it's also likely presence in the use of another reference for belly. Outside of this instance in Judges 3, every other use of the word for belly points to a woman's womb. Every other use besides Eglon. So to paraphrase Genesis 3.15, which you heard a couple weeks ago, the line of the woman, Ehud, is striking the line of the serpents, Eglon. Verse 22 then has the most play on words in the entire narrative. The fats, the blade, and the sword all sound nearly identical in the original language. So this sacrifice, this fattened calf, has been slaughtered on Israel's behalf. Then verse 23 begins Ehud's well-planned escape. The beginning of verse 23 begins as verse 23 ends. And the dung came out... Then Ehud came out. Another play on words. 
the king dies, the line of the serpents. Again, what Israel was worshiping, unrightfully so, in Exodus 32, and they're serving in Judges 3, Ehud then escapes the line of the woman. Then verse 24, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closets of the cool chamber. And so likely the irony and the humor of this very verse wouldn't have escaped early Israelite leaders. They probably would have all been on the ground laughing, saying, are you kidding me? The king of this region pooped himself and died. All the remains of Eglon, the fattened calf, the mighty ruler of Moab, was a corpse in a pile of feces. It's meant to be really vivid. You're meant to see this contrast between Eglon and Ehud. In verse 25, those who attended Eglon then smelled the feces to the point of absolute embarrassment. The king has fallen, and the Lord reigns supreme. He surmounts every earthly king and will forever. Verse 26, in the same reference of Ehud, passing by the idols, is also referred to in verse 19. And this is significant because those who worship the idols, who didn't pass by it, who bowed down to the idols, all through Judges 1 through 2 are Israel. Now the deliverer is passing right by the idols. And then look at verse 27. Another pun. When Ehud arrived... He sounded the trumpets. So I know it doesn't look like it, but sounded the trumpets is exactly the same verb as used for thrusting the sword into his belly. It could be translated both ways. This trumpet is Ehud's victory cry. I have slaughtered, we are victorious. The same trumpets is used in Jericho in Judges 6 as the walls come tumbling down by the priest to signal the Day of Atonement in Leviticus and in Mount Sinai at Exodus. It's all about the Lord's victory. And he was their leader. It can also be translated, he was before them. A direct allusion to Moses all throughout the book of Exodus. As the author is setting up, he's lifting up Ehud as a Moses-like figure. We have something of a deliverer here in the line of Moses. And then verse 28 transfers the hand of the Lord from the Moabites back to the Israelites through Ehud, the deliverer. And then verse 29 then signals to more temporary obedience by the Israelites under Ehud. It's almost comically Ehud encounters the fattened calf, Eglon. The Israelites then defeat the strong, able-bodied men. So as beginning of chapter 3 says, they've come to learn war. What are the Israelites now learning? They're learning war. 
And not a man escapes. At the end of verse 29, you get a temporary obedience to this mandate, given in Deuteronomy 7 and in 20. So ending this movement in verse 30, Israel was faithful in some sense under Ehud, their mediator, because of Ehud's faithfulness. Again, the land had rest, not the people. And instead of Othniel's 40 years, one generation, how many generations is given under Ehud? Two. A little bit more deliverance. So rest is increasing, but only for the lands. So the end of chapter 3, right before verse 31, looks hopeful. Under faithful mediators with varying tactics, it looks like they're fulfilling the law of Moses. And rest looks imminent. So you can ask, would this rest continue? Will the next deliverer prove faithful? The last points, deliverance, not continued, but paused. Verse 31 is the shortest treatments of any judge in the book of Judges. But this doesn't mean that it's all bad. It's like watching the news every day, where when it bleeds, it leads. But in this instance, no news is probably good news. So imagine at night sitting on your couch, flipping through local news stations, and nothing's happening. It's probably good. That's Shamgar. And it's not explicitly labeled as a deliverer or a judge, but two things to note about Shamgar. Killing 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad is probably foreshadowing Samson, who also uses a jawbone to defeat his enemies. So why is this important to note? What's missing at the end of verse 31 that both Othniel and Ehud have? There is no rest after Shamgar. The author is signaling that disobedience was temporary. These deliverers were faithful, but only temporarily, not perpetually or continually. So did you catch Eglon's actions in the middle of this narrative? He, as a representative of Israel, faithfully delivers his people by slaughtering the fattened calf, the seed of the serpent's belly. Yet there's one to come, and has come, who did not sacrifice another, but sacrificed himself. As the faithful, not calf, but lamb, who was led to the slaughter. Jesus Christ, the one who gives you not a temporary rest, but eternal rest. Not in another, but in himself. Who came like Ehud through the seed of the woman, 
to destroy the works of the seed of the serpent, to deliver us from the oppression of our sin and our enemies. So Othniel, he delivered faithfully, but only temporarily. Jesus Christ delivers fully and eternally. Ehud, the deliverer warrior, sacrificed a calf to deliver Israel. Yet Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for your sins, for our sins, that he might make us free. Shamgar delivers, but with no rest. Yet with Jesus Christ, he both delivers and gives rest. So we will end with Jesus' own words of rest in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So rest in Christ's obedience as your faithful deliverer. Enjoy the rest from the condemnation of your sins in him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've shown us previews, but that you are in yourself, through your son, our rest. That we're not given temporary rest, though it can feel like it. That we're truly given pure and perfect rest. To the deliverer who didn't just temporarily obey, but truly defeated the enemy, defeated the lion of the serpents, so that we would be in him. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.